Welcome to Retaining the Passion, Journeys Through Nursing. This is a non-affiliated podcast. Any views expressed by the hosts or guests do not necessarily represent those of the organizations they work for or are studying at, or any trade unions or professional bodies they are members of. Thanks for listening. Hi, Craig. Good afternoon. Hello, This is uh, quite possibly the most technically challenged we've been <laughs> recording our bits. Uh, we've had a few disasters. Um, and it's also the latest we've recorded our bit. So living life on the edge today. Yes. But before we get into the main part of our episode where we want to leave our interviewees really to speak the most there's been a lot going on in the nursing world so there's three things we'd like to mention yeah and the first is that it's been mental health awareness week this week and the theme's been connecting with nature I'm just back from a run so if you check my twitter out later you'll see some nice pictures of the peak district but it's made me realize actually it's really important to connect with the world outside and I thought I didn't have time today and I've made time and I definitely feel better because of it so that was the first thing we wanted to talk about and I think that's so important and you are glowing so obviously we knew the world like of good. <laughs> <laughs> the second thing was it was International Nurses Week and it was so great to see everyone coming together globally it's such a huge explosion across social media and various different platforms just to celebrate the profession of nursing and what it is that nurses do and I think acknowledge what a difficult year it has been for nursing and then specifically on Nurses Day, Florence Nightingale's birthday, May the 12th, it particularly exploded and that was so great to see. It did, it felt really exciting this year and I think for me it felt the most international, the kind of most coming together with what's happening in India and like you say the year we've been through. I think at the beginning of the pandemic there was a real feeling of everyone being on our side and I know for some nurses that's been a challenge and just seeing everybody come together and the night before hearing Dua Lipa kind of give it out to everybody. So Dua Lipa coming at Boris Johnson and massive massive thank you to Julie Park for raising the amazing work Elizabeth Anionwu who was the first ever clinical nurse specialist for sickle cell anemia and is a huge inspiration so the fact that she dedicated her Brit award to her amazing amazing and I think if you haven't seen that clip check it out it's all over Twitter because it just makes you really proud to be a nurse and we should all be really proud to be a nurse and I think what you just discussed how International Nurses Week this year has felt much more international much more global and because we had a specific episode on it with Jenny Watts from We Are Global Nurses and Howard Catton from the International Council of Nurses it's very important to note that the RCN had its AGM this week and overwhelmingly by 84.7% of the vote decided to rejoin the ICN. So whether people were pro or against, I think it's really important we all come together collaboratively now as the college to take forward the agenda and really work collaboratively with the other 130 international nursing associations. I think so. And I think the other thing to really comment on, so it's no secret that you were on 
that campaign group and I wasn't and I was actually very undecided about the way I was going to vote towards the end. And I think it's important to note that the other win for me on this is the win around Nurses Uniting to form a campaign because there's no question that that campaigning group, We Are Global Nurses, ran a positive, educated, evidence-based campaign that engaged people. And so we know that when people come together, they can make a change. And that is what in the end made me vote yes. I totally believe in global nursing. I wasn't sure whether the RCM were the right people to take that forwards at present because of stuff going on internally. But that campaign made me think, yeah, you know what, we've got the right people engaged in this that we can make a difference. And I think that's been a big win too. Yeah. And I think it's worth acknowledging that 10,000 people voted in that AGM. And though the RCN represents over 450,000 nurses and people up from the nursing body, and that seems a very small percentage, it actually is a really significant engagement from the RCN. We could do a whole episode on why the RCN has terrible engagement. but We probably should. We probably should. But that was a particularly good turnout. But anyway, In comparison to others. Yes, we're yeah. going, we could talk we're about this. We're going to turn to yeah. what this episode is about. So what is this week's episode title, Claire? This week's title is Dying Matters. Yes. And it's a tough subject. Yes. We know it's a tough subject. And actually, what we want the episode to be about is saying this shouldn't be a tough subject. This should be a subject that this isn't just about nurses. This is about everybody that we in our culture, and a lot of it is cultural, and some of our guests will talk about this, don't talk about death, don't talk about dying. We make it something to be terrified of, to not discuss, to not talk about, so that when the end comes, particularly through illness, but when the end comes, we panic instead of spending time with our loved ones because we don't know what they think. Yeah, because we don't have those plans in place. Yeah, It was interesting because one of the interviews you do solo. So I was then editing that and reflecting on that as we were listening to it and was doing some tweet commentary. And it's interesting because I think people our age, like I'm in my 30s, you're in your 40s, but people our age and even younger should be discussing what we want when we die because the one inevitable thing in life is we are all going to die so what Mm -hmm. do we want I very specifically know that I want to be buried in a wicker coffin in a woodland forest and not have a headstone no that's what I want (laughs) I want to become part of nature again but I've had open discussions with my partner with my parents and I know that they all want cremated I know the songs they want played at their funeral and I think we need to make that a natural part of human conversation. We need to not be scared of having these conversations. Yeah. And our guests very much reflect on that. And I guess we can talk a little bit about that after our listeners have heard yes. them. So we have two fabulous guests. The first is our first transatlantic guest. Mm-hmm. And he's from America. And he's specifically somebody we spoke to about LGBTQ plus community and palliative yep. care. So have a listen, first of all, to Billy. So Claire and I are absolutely delighted to be joined by Billy Rosa. Billy is a postdoctoral research fellow and a nurse practitioner and works at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre in New York. 
Now, I'm going to try and do my best not to fanboy because we asked <laughs> Billy to join us today because I heard him speak at a webinar and we have a lot of similar passions and areas of interest, which is why I thought for this episode where we're discussing dying matters, it would be really interesting to hear your viewpoints and the work that you've done. So Yeah, I think it took you about 60 seconds to contact me after you asked that <laughs> webinar go, we need to have him on. So hi, Billy, because it's the first time I've properly met you. So hello and welcome. So we always start our podcasts by asking our guests to tell us their story, essentially. So how did you get into nursing? How have you ended up where you are now? Be as personal as you want, but don't share anything that you obviously wouldn't want the world to know because the world does listen. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great to be here with you guys. Thank you for having me and kudos on a great podcast show. You're our first American. Wow, that is a huge honor. Well, it is a new administration and a new era in, in America, hopefully. So, so glad to be your first American. Yes, so I actually got into nursing as a second career. I was a professional dancer for years. I was in the theater performing. I was on tour. I actually sustained a a left hip fracture that left me not walking for a really long time. And during that time, I lost my livelihood, lost my income, lost my favorite thing in the world, which was to dance and create in that way. And went to massage therapy school, actually, just to learn about my body and be in a healing environment and really be quiet and to heal. And during that time, I was working in the clinical massage clinic, and I was really blown away by the outcomes that patients were experiencing because of the therapeutic massage. And I just wanted to find a way to do that more consistently and strategically. And so I went right into nursing school. I really thought I wanted to be a nurse anesthetist, actually. Okay. Um, okay. I don't think we have them here. I don't no. think. Do they actually anesthetize? They do. In the ORs, they pretty much, my understanding in a lot of places is in America is that they pretty much do the same functions as an anesthetist. I mean, I could be totally wrong because I don't work in that area on mental health, but I haven't heard anyone say I'm a nurse anesthetist. Well, you you have nurses that work in anesthesiology, but I don't know whether we have nurse anesthetists. We will need to fact check that. (laughs) That is something we need to find out. (laughs) But the, the long and short of that is I shadowed in the OR a few times and was thinking about applying. But really, I kind of realized over time that they didn't do the thing that gave me the most joy, which was connecting and building relationships with patients and families. My time in critical care was all about supporting families, walking them through some of the most difficult Mm -hmm. and vulnerable moments of their life, a lot of loss, a lot of grief, and being in the OR would have taken that away in a lot of ways. So uh, I ended up going to get my nurse practitioner degree and then kind of like just tried a bunch of different things. I worked globally. I worked in Africa for a year as part of a healthcare capacity building initiative. We were starting the first master's program in Rwanda through an initiative launched by the Rwandan Ministry of Health. And then really, I had been feeling more and more pulled to palliative care for years. It's just something I wanted to do to alleviate suffering. It, you know, my definitions of nursing and palliative care are almost identical. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just about alleviating suffering and optimizing quality of life for people who have advanced illness up into the point where they die and into the bereavement phase for caregivers. So I, I came back and I did a palliative care fellowship and I've been working as a palliative care NP and did my PhD and here I am. 
It's so funny. Your story is very similar to mine. I went oh, you to were London. I, I, I was in musical theatre for 13 years. <laughs> I lived in London. So I did that and then came back and retrained as a nurse. And we're also, both second careers, aren't we? I did not dance or act <laughs> unless I'd had a few too many gins. No, but you had a very successful professional career. I worked in boring business, yeah. So it would be really interesting as this conversation progresses to talk more about the difference between palliative care and end of life care, because a lot of people, I think, conflate the two. Whereas palliative care is about managing a chronic long-term illness you're never going to recover from, end-of-life care is that very last stage of palliative care. But what I wanted to chat to you about, Billy, is a lot of your work has involved and focused on palliative and end-of-life care for LGBT plus communities. Mm. So how do you think this differs from palliative and end-of-life care for the general population? Or do you think that it should differ? Yeah, well, you know, I'm taken by that question, should it differ? Because I think, let's think about it in an ideal world where every human being was valued and treated the same, where everyone had equitable access to care services, where people were really seen from a biopsychosocial perspective in the health setting, and there was no judgment or consequence for who you are in the world. So should it differ in the idealist sense from an ethical stance of nursing, should it differ? No. Does it differ? Yes. <laughs> uh, right? So LGBTQ plus populations face marginalization, discrimination, bias, violence. They face political consequences, death in some countries, right? In many places, uh, a lot of health systems do have very inclusive policies for LGBTQ patients and their families of choice. But a lot of countries endorse exclusion from health services for these groups and endorse violence (laughs) against these groups, right? So also you see that the largest percentages, well, not the largest actually, but substantial proportions of uh, persons experiencing homelessness, people with substance use disorder, people who have suicidal ideation attempts and suicidality, many of them stem from LGBTQ populations, whether it's due to social stigma or social isolation. Mental health challenges are higher among this population when compared to non-LGBTQ persons. So should it differ? No. Does it differ? And in reality, do we need to make really concerted efforts toward improving the inclusive care for these groups? Absolutely. And how do you think we can improve that inclusivity? Well, there's a lot of efforts toward this. I'd love to point your listeners toward a a document. If they go to globalpalliativecare.org, there's a briefing note from the International Association for Hospice and Palliative Care, along with a few other global palliative care organizations. And we created a series of briefing notes. The organizations really led this broad briefing note initiative to make recommendations at the policy level for all countries during COVID-19. And I was fortunate enough to be able to contribute to the briefing notes specific to LGBTQ populations. It's like a two or three page reference that'll be really useful for answering some of those questions. But the Long and short of it is that there's kind of interpersonal level biases, there's institutional and service level issues and barriers to care, and then there's broader national level concerns. So there's things we can do from 
educating healthcare workers to not make heteronormative assumptions, right? Not use heteronormative language, uh, to actually assess for sexual orientation and gender identity, to really make sure that we are evaluating and assessing the social determinants of health early in the disease process. So we get an understanding of what the support structure is, how this person really exists in their community and in their real life to explicitly involve partners and families of choice in decision-making, but also to be really open and deliberate about statements of inclusion, whether that's posters or rainbow lanyards that really emphasize this as a safe zone or specific services and support groups for LGBTQ persons to make sure that their needs are being met throughout the trajectory of illness and into bereavement. All of that is really essential. So I think there's a lot of different interventions we can put forth at different levels, individual and systemic. You are saying so many of my dream phrases. It's really interesting that you mentioned chosen families and families of choice, because obviously we know a lot of people from LGBTQ communities can be disowned by their families when they come out, whether that is LGB people or people from the trans community who don't necessarily have the heteronormative next of kin because of who they are. So yeah, and my undergraduate dissertation focused on the lived experiences of prostate cancer for men who have sex with men. And a lot of that was to do with the fact there wasn't these specific support groups set up for this population group. And there weren't that approach to inclusivity and having partners welcomed in as would be for heterosexual couples. So yeah, I think you're so right. It is so important that we address these. Well, and think about the isolation that you just talked about, the potential exclusion from families, people being disowned, and then put it in the context of COVID-19 where Mm -hmm. people were on lockdown and isolating, right? And they're potentially living in abusive environments or disapproving environments that really put them at risk for increased mental health challenges and decreased access to health services that they need. Yeah, we've definitely seen that in mental health services without shadow of a doubt, definitely had impact. So I guess one of the things that's quite interesting is that we do train slightly differently. So in the US, you start on a kind of general qualification and you do later in your career take specialist choices. But we start with four distinct fields that continue really throughout our careers. So adult, children and young people, learning disability and mental health. So I'm interested to know how you think those four fields of nursing can deliver palliative and end-of-life care with dignity and respect. Mm, That is a great question. And I think it goes back to Craig's just clarification a little earlier about the difference between palliative and end-of-life care. Yeah. And I think it's important to kind of define that up front before I answer that question. So there's a wonderful consensus-based definition of palliative care that the International Association for Hospice and Palliative Care put forth. It was really a global effort, a three-phase consensus study to define palliative care. And it really defined it as as a holistic and active approach to alleviating serious health-related suffering throughout the disease trajectory, and especially at the end of life and into bereavement, really aiming to optimize the quality of life for patients and their families. That's just one component of the definition. And there's a lot in that definition. One, (laughs) it's holistic, right? So it's really person-centered. It's truly individualized uh, around 
personal needs, values, preferences of the patient who's experiencing serious illness. It really emphasizes that it can be given at any point along the serious illness trajectory. So from the time of diagnosis to the time of death and into bereavement. So I think what's really important there is that a lot of people think that you either get curative care or palliative care, right? So in the field of cancer, which is my field, you either get chemo radiation surgery or you get palliative care. Mm -hmm. But in the ideal sense, there is a synergistic partnership that happens between curative treatment where palliative care can be on board for that patient and their family early in the disease process, because it's really a relationship-based model of care, right? So the longer I can build relationship, the more use I'm actually going to be able to be to this patient and family. And so as time progresses, maybe there's fewer options for disease-directed treatments, the chemotherapies, et cetera, and maybe palliative care then takes more of a pronounced role in the care plan. And then we tend to call end-of-life care here hospice care. Uh, I'm assuming you call it hospice care there as well. Um, We would use the term end-of-life care. We do have hospices. They're very difficult to get into. But yeah, we do have hospices, but we would refer to it as end-of-life care. And that's when someone then reaches the stage where they are then quite literally at the end of life. And the focus is on symptom relief and making sure that someone dies with dignity and respect and that there is bereavement processes put in for family members or chosen family members. Hospices are part of the voluntary sector in the UK, so they're not central. Although NHS work really closely with hospices, they're not funded in the same way, so they're they're funded by donations. Yeah, they're not part of our universal healthcare system, which is the NHS, because obviously we differ from America. The NHS is our universal healthcare system, so hospices, like Claire said, are third sector. They're still free at the point of delivery. Nobody pays for hospice care, but it's all fundraised or donation-based. Got it. So I think that the easiest way for listeners to understand is that hospice care and or end of life care can really be considered a subset of palliative care. But I think to Craig's point, when we conflate palliative care and end of life care or palliative care and hospice care, we really miss out on the opportunity to provide more integrated care. Mm -hmm. Um, earlier in the disease throughout the continuum of illness. And so very often, if palliative care is kind of operationalized as death care, then what happens is you have palliative specialists who are trained to provide symptom management, cultural care, spiritual care, psychological support, social support, legal and ethical guidance showing up when a patient is actively dying. And the type and quality of relationship that you can really build with patients and families at that point is limited, right? So, and and another part of our goal is really to provide an additional level of support to the primary team. So the point there, before I answer the question about the, the nurse training is really just If palliative care, right, the call per the WHO is really fully integrated palliative care as a component of universal health coverage, that is what's proposed by the WHO. And if that were really actualized, it would be a very different system where we could be providing that holistic active care uh, throughout the course of it. Um, To answer your question about the training I think this goes back to something that's really personal to me, which is I've spent a lot of effort really just trying to help nurses reframe themselves as understanding that A, every nurse is a palliative care nurse. Every nurse is a palliative care nurse. Mm -hmm. What nurse is not seeking to alleviate suffering and optimize quality of life? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And B, every nurse is responsible for learning, I think ethically accountable for learning primary palliative care competencies, primary palliative care skills, right, that don't require specialist input. So whether you're working with adults or children, people with disabilities of any kind, including learning disabilities, or people with mental health challenges, it's all a component of good palliative care, or in other words, just good care. I think we've got some way to go in mental health services. I know you're talking about adult care or possibly children care, but physical ill health and the palliative pathway joining early on. But when I think of in particular eating disorders, which have a really high incidence of people dying from them, actually, we want to cure it all the time. We're always on a curative pathway, curative pathway, and we lose that opportunity maybe to make those memories and those comfort and not have them in pain because we're always on this curative pathway. So it's really interesting to hear you say that, because I don't think mental health services bring in palliative care in the same way that other services do, certainly not here in the UK. Yeah, and I even think to some degree adult services. I, just before I moved to my most recent job, worked in uh, what you in the US would call a communicable diseases ward. So we call it infectious diseases ward over here. It became a COVID-19 hub during covid And quite often nurses are really scared by palliative care. And I don't think it's featured enough in our pre-registration education. So there's a real fear around it. And you even see some fear from our medical colleagues around palliative and end-of-life hospice care. And I think what then happens is we rely on our specialist palliative care nurse practitioners to come in and be the ones that prescribe the syringe drivers or be the ones that speak to family members. But these specialists work Monday to Friday, nine to five. Now people are experiencing palliative and end of life needs all the time. So I completely agree with you. We all need to be these palliative care professionals and aim towards that goal. I just, I'm thinking about, you know, that schedule and your week coming up on dying matters and yes, dying matters, but dying can't be scheduled. And, you know, living matters too. And it's important to remember that people are living up until the point where they're no longer alive. Yeah. And part of the accountability is to ensure that people have an optimal experience and quality of life in alignment with what's most important to them up until the moment they are no longer alive. Yeah. And families want to know that exact timing, don't they? That's always a question. Well, when when is the end going to come? When is the end going to come? And that's so difficult and challenging. And when you look at the amount of just a broader conversation in the context of COVID, when you look at the levels of moral suffering and PTSD and just overall clinician distress that's occurred over the last year, one of the cases that colleagues and I have been making is that if we were to equip every nurse with primary palliative care skills, right, really like generalist skills in spiritual care, being able to integrate cultural preferences into a care plan, really build facility with symptom management it would alleviate distress. And there's some research to point to this, that if we equip them with basic palliative care communication skills, it would actually reduce burnout Mm. over time because there wouldn't be clinician distress of saying, I don't know what to do, or I feel overwhelmed, or this is emotionally challenging, or this is outside my scope of practice. No, you can equip nurses to be able to manage this kind of distress so that they feel empowered to deliver that level of care consistently. I think that's so inspiring and kind of links into 
my next question, which is, so we've got this episode coming out at the very end of Dying Matters Week here in the UK. So this week is a chance for coalition partners, organisations and individuals to all come together and open up conversations around death, dying and bereavement. So in your experience, Billy, how best do you think as nurses that we can address these topics with patients, with family members and with each other as nurses and healthcare professionals? Yeah. You know, I saw this question earlier when you sent it to me. <laughs> I know, I was, sorry. <laughs> I was worried about the question because I was really, let me take a stab at answering it. So I think to answer your question, we need to be sensitive about the differences that are needed and how we discuss the topic when we're speaking to the public versus when we're speaking to a policymaker versus when we're speaking to a clinical multidisciplinary colleague, right? A lot of it is about addressing misperceptions. Part of the reason I so wanted to link people to that consensus-based definition of palliative care is because we need consistency in our language over and over and over and over again. So this myth about palliative care being equated with the actively dying patient so that we can eradicate that and we can really achieve optimal pain management further upstream, right? So I think there's a few things. One is... The public definitely need to be educated. Nurses can be writing in op-eds and newspapers, on blogs. Just what you're doing here is educating the public. There's a great website uh, in the U.S. called Get Palliative Care that's sponsored by the Center to Advance Palliative Care. And it's really a patient-oriented website to educate about palliative care. So I'm sure there's probably similar websites that are contextualized to the UK over by you guys that you could link patients with. Within the clinical setting, I think we need to have open dialogues with clinicians about how they define palliative care. You know, when I give lectures, for example, sometimes I'll just ask a room, how do you define palliative care? And I'll let people just talk openly. And very often, if they're not palliative care clinicians by training, I hear pieces of the right definition, but I hear a lot of just complete misunderstanding. So a palliative care service and palliative care teams cannot be leveraged appropriately if people don't know what they do. Yeah. Yeah, And I think that language is important when you're talking to families and patients then, isn't it? Because if they haven't got that understanding, I mean, just personal experience, my father-in-law's in a care home here and my husband's a graphic designer, Craig knows him. And he had a phone call one day from the care home, which was kind of, oh, by the way, your dad's got urine infection. He's lost a couple of kilos in weight and he's not really eating. So my husband, because you've listed all these, in actual fact, what happened is they collected pieces of information together and decided to phone him that day. But he heard DNA CPR means he's about to die. And that language hadn't been framed right because there wasn't that understanding of why are we doing it? What does this mean to your dad? Why are we asking him about it? So I think if professionals don't understand it, families and carers and patients themselves are going to really struggle. A thousand percent, right? And that's also the danger of having palliative care show up as a team at the very end of life. Mm -hmm. Because usually the consultation will come after the primary team has told them, quote, there's nothing left we can do. And as a palliative care specialist, we come from the stance of there's always something we can do. Something We may withdraw treatment. We never withdraw care. Those are very different things. And it's not always framed that way. And then when we speak to policymakers, if you're engaging policymakers, it's really important to remember that they're human beings too, mm-hmm. right? They know suffering. They have family members who've suffered. And the key about nurses, I mean, we say this about palliative care specialists, but the same is true for nurses. Nurses spend more time with patients and families than any other profession. Bearing witness to suffering is that 
we all are in the position to leverage both. And I said this on the webinar that you saw, Craig, leverage our data and our stories, right? We can present evidence. We can talk about the need to alleviate suffering. We can talk about barriers to accessing pain management or symptom medications, but we can also talk about the human experience of suffering. And there is real power in that. Well, I was very inspired by what you said and have written a piece on that we are also part of the Royal College of Nursing's newly registered nurses network. And a big part of that, I've written a piece about future nurse leadership. And I think the best way we can influence policymakers is by sharing the lived experiences of patients, but then being able to back those lived stories up with empirical data. So we capture their hearts with stories but then we back it up with hard evidence. And I think as nurses, we really have that power as advocates to be able to do that. A hundred percent. The statistics about suffering and palliative care are so amazing that if you opened a sentence to a policymaker with, did you know the global burden of serious health-related suffering is expected to escalate 87% globally over the next 40 years? And I can tell you, I've seen that in my practice through X, Y, Z examples, right? Like that is so powerful, you know, a hundred percent. And I think you've talked about suffering and I suppose we can't ignore the fact that we're still in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. We can look at India at the moment and see how much suffering there is there. So I just wonder how you think palliative and end-of-life care has been affected by this pandemic and what we've been able to deliver as nurses in particular? Well, I mean, this is the case. If ever there was a case where every nurse needed to be equipped to deliver primary palliative care skills, this is it, right? I mean, 28 million nurses around the world accounting for 60% of the healthcare workforce globally. Many places, nurses are the first or the only health provider that most people encounter. Um, Now, what if every single nurse was equipped with the communication, symptom management, and spiritual care skills to be able to say, here's a human being who's suffering and or dying. And even if there's nothing medically we can do to intervene and extend the quantity of life, gosh darn it, there is a lot I can do to alleviate the suffering of this human being and their family, right? And so... Because I um, think families did take comfort from that, didn't they? They took comfort from knowing that somebody was with them. If they couldn't be there, somebody was holding their hand, somebody was talking to them. Right. And there are studies being published about patients who are religious and want last rites, and the priest is doing the last rites from the parking lot via a smartphone, and the nurse is at the bedside, but nothing can account, especially think about, there's been studies that look at how much face-to-face time clinicians spend in direct patient care. And nurses spend something like close to 90% of their shift in direct face-to-face care, as opposed to maybe, I can't remember the exact number, I think it was something like 10 to 12% of an ICU physician, and even less from allied staff. So nobody is in a better position to deliver those primary palliative care skills than nurses. So I think COVID just brought to the forefront this massive, massive global escalation of suffering, um, but also mass bereavement, right? There was a recent publication that talked about for every one person who dies of COVID, nine are grieving. Um, So we just think of the millions and millions and millions who have the risk of falling through the cracks, particularly marginalized and minoritized groups like LGBT people, right? So if they were under cared for or underserved prior to the pandemic, not only do they have 
less chance of getting the appropriate health screening and health service access, but their grief, which was already disenfranchised, is going to be even further pushed to the periphery, yeah. right? As our usual end of life rights are kind of eradicated because of all the of the restrictions and, and social distancing mandates. So I think COVID has really been in some senses, I don't like to say it this way, but in some senses, it's been a wonderful opportunity for palliative care because I think people and systems have really been dependent on palliative specialists more than they probably ever have. So, yeah. But it's also brought up huge gaps in the palliative care framework and the fact that we don't have enough palliative care specialists at all worldwide, right? And that there are a huge number of countries around the world that don't have nearly sufficient access to controlled essential medicines for symptom management. Yeah. So it's brought up policy issues. It's brought up lack of specialist and program development issues. And it's brought up, it's really made us confront these misconceptions we have about palliative care as a specialty. Well, you in the US and us here in the UK, we're both from high income countries and we've struggled. So we only need to think of what those in lower income countries, how that suffering must have been for them and it's it really is quite unbearable to think about it like you said as nurses the thing we want to do is alleviate suffering and be with people through their journeys to make it as best as it possibly can be yeah I know you said this was a conversation but I can really talk the paint off a wall so uh, (laughs) (laughs) so can we (laughs) so you've met your match (laughs) but uh, a few years ago I was working with colleagues in Liberia and West Africa and I was helping to facilitate a palliative care training and this was a a nurse-led community-based palliative care team in the rural south of the country in Maryland County and they have very inconsistent very limited access to analgesics for pain management or morphine for breathlessness at end of life and benzodiazepines for anxiety, all of the medications that are really standards of care in in the U.S. and other high-income countries, um, particularly for end-of-life symptom management. And so can you imagine, you know, doing this palliative care training with with this team of 10 or 12 professionals who really don't even have the medication resources they need to be able to go out into the community and prescribe and administer to alleviate that suffering, right? So that's where all of the other skills like empathic communication and making sure that needs and preferences and values are integrated into a plan of care come in to relieve distress wherever we can, even in the absence of those medications, which is, you know, unethical and far from ideal, but in some places can't right now is unavoidable. Yeah. Oh, on a positive note though, Billy, (laughs) we do like to end every episode by asking, asking all... It looks like the world had just fallen in on you then, No, I know, but I just, I just, the pandemic has, it is interesting hearing what you said earlier about if we all were better palliative care specialists, the emotional burnout wouldn't be so bad. Because I have found this year as a new registrant exceptionally hard. The ward that I was working on became a COVID hub and the amount of death that I've experienced as someone who wasn't trained as a palliative care specialist has been emotionally exhausting and I have felt burnt out. And though I... I've moved to this new role, which I absolutely love and would have always moved towards a public health role. I don't actually know if I've moved to that role quicker than I normally would have to get out of the environment that I was in, if that makes sense. But anyway, going hundred percent, like 4,000 nurses have quit in Quebec City in Canada 
right? Like 4,000 during the pandemic. Think about that, right? Nobody was prepared. I think very few people were prepared to be exposed to the level of trauma. It's trauma. Well, I used to come home and sit and cry on the sofa. Like one night, I, it, Claire is one of, we always talk about finding our people. Claire is one of my people. And I remember phoning and just crying. My mum's a nurse phoning and crying to her and be like, I can't do this. Like it did get. And I clearly said, yes, you can. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) But we do like to end each episode by asking our guests, if you could give one piece of advice to anyone, it can be to nurses, can be to any of our listeners, the general public, can be big, small, existential as you like. What would your one piece of wisdom be, Billy? So this is what kept coming to me today as I knew I was getting ready to talk to you because a few people have been reaching out for career advice lately. And I think my biggest piece of advice is to really stay present for the opportunities on your professional journey, because there is no there, there, you know, like we all are trying to get somewhere and like, we all think we have these aspirations and goals and that's wonderful. But once you reach those goals, there's going to be new goals. And it's really just a never ending journey. So I think it's really important, particularly during this crazy time to just really pause and enjoy the moments. Like I so have enjoyed this time talking to you, right? This is just as important a part of the journey as the research I'm doing right now or the articles I'm working on, because this is what it's about. It's about building community with like-minded people and really seeking to elevate what we do in the world. So really just stay present, stay open, say yes to opportunities. And yeah, I think that's it. That's fab. That is fab advice. And if anyone wants to follow you on social media, Billy, where's the best place to find you? Twitter at brosa underscore phd. Well, you should definitely all give Billy a follow. And thank you so much for joining us today. We could talk for hours and hours and hours. But I think thank our you. listeners Thanks for would taking your off. time to, <laughs> to speak to us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. After interviewing Billy, which I think you will agree was an amazing, amazing interview. Sadly, I couldn't be there, but Claire does a fantastic job speaking to our next guest who I'm sure many of you will have heard of, the fabulous Dr. Catherine Mannix. I'm delighted this morning to be joined by Catherine Mannix, who is a retired palliative care medic. Craig's very sad that he can't join us. Unfortunately, he's on shift. So Catherine, I'm afraid you're just going to be interviewed by me, but Craig will listen back with interest. So good morning. Good morning, Claire. Thanks for inviting me. I oh, was so delighted to have you. I've heard you on lots of podcasts and radio programs, so it's an absolute honour to be able to speak to you today. We start all our conversations with our guests, asking them about their career journey so far and how they've got to where they are. So if you wouldn't mind telling our listeners something about your story, that would be great. Okay. So I went to medical school because I really was interested in helping people, which apparently interviewees are told not to say these days, which I think is Terrible. Really? It is awful. terrible. <laughs> and then when I got into my third year and we became ward-based, I suddenly made this awful discovery that doctors didn't have the relationship with patients that I wanted to have. Nurses did. So there was this massive crisis of, have I actually chosen the wrong career? And I have to say the nurses on that ward were magnificent in 
catching me as I wobbled and integrating me into some of their duties because it was a oh, it was the hematology ward in the 1980s so lots of dying people and they helped me to stay in contact with people I'd clocked I mean I was very junior I couldn't do anything helpful as a doctor as a medical student but what they showed me is that sometimes the most helpful thing is to be and how to be beside people at a time when there is nothing that you can actually do yeah and I think that was a huge gift then to my future doctoring so when I qualified I went back to work on that ward because I felt very attached to them to the specialty and I thought that I would like to specialize in medical oncology so I then had a kind of hospital phase of my career where you know you're a junior doctor and you go through all those exams and things and don't sleep and (laughs) for a year and and don't don't get very much sleep yeah (laughs) although actually I must say this is the 1980s although we didn't get very much sleep we had fantastic companionship and camaraderie yeah we belonged to a ward team to the senior doctors there and to the nurses there who looked after us told us off sorted us out, kept us right, and think that we had a better time probably as human beings than junior oh, doctors at the same nice stage. that's nice to hear, because you, you quite often just they, hear... not ward-based. Yeah, you just hear negativity about the past sometimes, don't you? And it's nice to hear that there's things that were good and maybe that we could learn from and bring back in the future. Mm, I think belonging to a ward team helps people to be confident about knowing when to ask for help and not feeling yeah. overwhelmed. So you know the more senior doctors in your firm, but also the nurses are on your side. You're their doctor. Yeah. And so that sense of teamwork establishes a multidisciplinary teamwork established itself very early these are all things that I didn't realize at the time they were just nice people to work with yeah it's looking back you can see how influential that, that was yeah 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 so during my fourth year after qualifying I'd eventually made it as far as working in the regional cancer center as their most junior doctor yes so I'm, <laughs> I'm on the ladder to be an oncologist so finding the cure for cancer that's what oncology was about in those days lots of taking blood spinning it down coming in in the middle of the night sticking things in freezers drawing graphs lots of graphs (laughs) and actually what was really interesting to me wasn't the people who were on the fancy new regimes although I could see that was important what was really interesting to me was the people who already knew they weren't going to be cured anyway yeah and that for them time was ticking time was precious sorting out a pain wasn't going to happen by treating the underlying cancer to take the pain away because those possibilities have been exhausted. So we had to find a way to take the pain away. What's causing it? What makes it worse? What makes it better? What could we do with medicines, with physiotherapy, with finding a different way of getting your arm into the sleeve of your cardi? That kind of, Mm. what could the physio do? What could the OT do? What, What am I missing here? And so as I was kind of drilling into that kind of detail one of the consultants where I was working said do you think you would be happier actually working in hospice care where this is what they do because palliative care as as an expression hadn't even been invented then so I went to visit a hospice in another town and just thought oh this is all of what I do with joy at work Every yeah. day, there are no graphs. I don't have to spin the <laughs> blood and put it in the freezer at midnight. But there are people, their families, their relationships, the things that really matter to them, getting them home, seeing them as outpatients, visiting them at home. 
oh, I like this. Mm. So around about the time that I made that kind of transition in my head, a hospice was built by public subscription in the town where I lived. Oh, um, so I wrote, like to said, <laughs> you know, I wrote to them and said, do you think you might have a job for a doctor? And they invited me around. And so long story short, they just appointed their first consultant that day. And the interview committee was still there. And I'd sent them a CV just to say, you know, this is me and this is what I've done. And I, I found I was at a job interview and they created oh, wow. a registrar job in this place. The poor new consultant didn't get any say in it. <laughs> and it was brand shiny new hospice. So the nurses began work during the July of that year. And then I joined them on the 1st of August. So we were all learning together. And that teamwork thing again. Oh, uh, So absolutely yeah. back in my happy place yeah. and surrounded by nurses who were absolutely dedicated to the thing they were doing. They also were risking their careers. Everybody had told us we were doing the wrong thing. This was a backward step, that we'd become miserable, that you can't spend your whole life dealing with dying people. That's not a career job. And all of us were kind of going, yeah, I think you're yeah, wrong. But, yeah, yeah, but. So my story is very complicated, but I went to nurse training school 25 years ago and then I've returned as an adult, so I'm newly registered now. But when I was there in Oxford 25 years ago, I volunteered at Helen House, which was one of the first ever children's hospices. And I have never been in a happier place than that, which people say, but it's full of dying children. How can you be happy? And actually, it just was. It was one of the most joyous experiences of my life being in yeah. that hospice. And it's it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because these are people, the thing that attracted me to those incurable people in the cancer centre was the same thing that was happening like a flood, if you like, mm. in the hospice, which was they worked out what was important because time was precious. And so every moment was precious. Their people were precious. The things that they loved birds nature music yeah. model making whatever their thing was food there was a lot of food oh, and that a was lot of, oh yes yeah yeah <laughs> lovely food lovely food and yeah it's a really interesting thing working with people where they've got how to be and isn't it really sad that we often only get how to be when being is about to be taken off us. Absolutely. Uh, you're so right. My uncle died of motor neurone disease just before Christmas. And obviously we knew from when he was diagnosed two years before that mm. that was what would end his life. And I'm really lucky because I come from a family that tell each other that we love each other and spend a lot of time together. And I just reflected a lot on how sad would that have been if that had been my only opportunity. You know, I actually didn't see him because of COVID. He lived in Australia, but I knew he knew that we all loved him because we'd spend mm. that time. But reflecting back, I think how sad for families who don't do that, who don't have that opportunity to spend time together, like you say, because they don't think about it until it's too late. Yeah. So there I was, 1986, working in a hospice. That year, I think, was the year that the discipline of palliative care was kind of given that name. The Association for Palliative Medicine got formed. So I'm a founder member, which makes me feel really, really old. And we thought, all of us thought, that within a decade, we would have educated ourselves out of a job that we'd have gone back out to consultations in primary care with general yeah. practitioners, community nurses, people like that, that we'd be doing consults in hospitals, that the most difficult 
conundrums that needed to be surrounded by the expertise of a hospice team would come to the hospice, but largely our work would be outside the hospice. Mm -hmm. And that by 10 years later, everybody would have the knowledge that's capital T and a capital K, the knowledge. <laughs> and it would be part of what community nurses, GPs, oncology nurses, long-term conditions teams did. But of course, what happened was once you make it into a discipline and it becomes a specialty, then you start to expand the knowledge and eventually it becomes too much knowledge for somebody yeah. to carry in addition to their already extensive knowledge of their own specialty, whether that's general practice or cardiology or oncology yeah. or whatever. So here we are, we've still got palliative care 30 years later. But the thing that didn't change that I really wished had changed was that when we first met people back then, they were terrified. They had extraordinary ideas about what dying would be like that they'd got from telly or yeah. newspaper headlines. They'd never seen a person die because people don't die at home. If they were far away, then you didn't go and visit in hospital because that was too difficult. And so they just had these ideas of escalating pain, drowning, choking, nothing like what we were seeing on a daily basis in yeah. hospice care and nothing like what I'd actually seen in hospital practice either. So probably about 25 years after I'd started, I had a moment, by then I was working entirely in hospital practice, the palliative care team, where it was not an extraordinary moment. I think it was the fact that it wasn't an extraordinary moment that really crystallized it. Yeah. But it was around a particular very elderly patient whose family had never discussed with him what he would want when he was so sick that he might die. And he was in his 90s. So it wasn't like, you it's know, the there were of the blue, you know, decades yeah. to have this conversation. <laughs> yeah. And I just thought we can't, we can't keep doing this. No. One family at a time. We've got to do something about the public understanding of dying. And I kept trying to think how could we do that I got in touch with dying matters I got in touch with the national end of life lead team for NHS England what could we do how could we get on I don't know the, the today program and get a column in the newspaper and get into women's magazines yeah. and how can we change the conversation in locker rooms in sports clubs you know how do you get to people where people are when they're not sick when they're not thinking about dying and actually get them to understand what stuff is about before yeah. it's so emotionally tense that it's difficult to talk about it and there was lots of kind of nodding of heads and yeah 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 we really really need to do that somebody really needs to do that <laughs> and probably over about a year as I'm thinking about it we kind of need celebrities to showcase it don't we because people listen to celebrities yeah but we are the culture of celebrities sure yeah it has to be grounded in somebody who's worked where dying happens, been, you know, kneeling on the floor, avoiding the paws of the dog who's under the bed <laughs> while helping a family to get what's going on. Yeah. Or most deaths are still in hospital, understands how it is and how you can claim the space around a hospital bed, even if it's in a four-bedded bay. Yeah. And yeah, a bit of hospice, but most of us are not going to die in a hospice. And just gradually this dawning on me that the person or our person who could do something like that could be me. Yes. And I have to say, it didn't thrill me. It kind of fell over me like a big cloud. Oh, God, how would you even start? So I took early retirement to try and work out how you would even start. 
and now here, here we and are. And look how far you've come with that, which is incredible because I think you're so well known now for the conversations you have. And I suppose culturally it is part of it in the UK. We're very British stiff upper lip. Mm. We don't like to talk about things. And it's sad, really. Again, when I was training for the first time, I, I was on a community hospital. I don't think they have them anymore where you were in hospital, but under the care of your GP. And a lot of people were there because there weren't places in hospices or their homes weren't suitable for them to be in whilst they were dying. And I remember a family from the traveller community who were in every day seeing him and, and they'd had brilliant conversations about death and this family knew what he wanted and they knew what they wanted for it and they used to come in every day and have parties and bring food and all kinds of things and he did die whilst I was there and he died at night and I was with him and his family weren't but they came in and they was oh thank you for not leaving him on his own that was exactly what he wanted but they knew and they took massive comfort in that and that was a real learning exercise for me not to Mm. shy away from those conversations because I think as Brits, we're we're not very good at, at having those conversations. Yeah, it's interesting, is it? Because I don't really know why we're not. We seem to be okay to have other difficult conversations, mm. express disagreement with each other, fall out with each other, even about other yeah. things, politics particularly. Yeah. Um, so what is it about the idea of end of life and it makes us have to, you can't say the word, you have to tip your head on one side. Yes. It's a very special voice. <laughs> and what is that about? And it's almost as if if we could just focus in on the voice that we have when we're discussing what to have for tea. Yeah. Or I'm off to Tesco's, is there anything you need me to bring back? That voice and that head position. And now let's use that to talk about at the very end of your life, what do you think will be the things that are really important to mm. you? Because I'm mm. starting to think what mine are. I'd be really interested to know what yours are. That's yeah. That's not a big leap, is it? No, because it's inevitable. It, your birth and death are the two things we all share equally, isn't it? We all go through those stages. Our lives might be very different on the path, but we share them. I suppose there's been a heightened awareness in the public this year because of COVID and because mm. so many people have been in hospital on their own and dying. And I know nurses that I've spoken to in particular have found that really difficult. Those conversations that have had to happen over the phone or through iPads. Do you think that will move us forwards with having these conversations or do you think it's going to be a step backwards? I think it's a both and situation, Mm. probably. I suspect that the public will get back to immortality as fast as possible once we stop having daily broadcasts of numbers of deaths from COVID on the news because I think the human condition is geared to ignoring that inevitability Mm. in some way but I think the workforce has been transformed by I think you're absolutely right so I went back out of retirement and my local trust that I used to work in used me for staff support and communication skills support for staff because that exactly as you're saying those daily repeated phone calls to families that they were getting to know by their voices or sometimes by video calls yeah and having to give worse news and worse news and eventually tell them that the person was dying so some communication skills to support that but the thing that really came home to me when I was talking to people across our very very big trust was 
the tenderness, the intimacy that we don't usually get of having to be the people who were making the phone calls on behalf of the sick person to their family and the family back to the sick person. Yeah. I'm using family as, as your A wider, family. yeah. Yeah. Because once you've got high flow oxygen on, you can't hear what somebody's saying to you on the phone and they can't hear what you're mm. saying back to them. And almost everybody was dying with high flow oxygen. Yes. So those staff, principally nurses, nursing students, board clerks, allied health professionals, just everybody just stepped up. It was fantastic. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And having those conversations, having to say, he says he loves you. What do you want me to say back? And then waiting and being the vehicles for those Mm. really, really tender conversations. And the thing that I heard over and over again in staff support sessions was I felt guilty for not being the wife, the husband, the the family, the friend that they wanted to have there. And yet, look what we've learned from that. Yes, it was so, so sad. But all those people who had not had any kind of end of life conversation before have actually gone in at the deepest level Mm. and had those conversations and been able to be there. That's the sort of experience that most of us would only get by going to work in a hospice. Yes. So the workforce is knackered and sad and shocked and I think actually probably traumatized. And we're going to have to do a lot of work to hold people together while individuals repair or fall apart and then repair at their own speed. Yeah. So we're going to have to carry on looking after each other I don't know. What do you think? You do mental health. I well, think maybe two or three years before we're a long time. Out the other side of this. Yeah, I think we're Something seeing. Cool. Yeah, we're seeing staff yeah. and the public. The impact of COVID on mental health is huge. Staff who have, like you say, seen repeated deaths one after mm. the other that they weren't necessarily prepared for, or that feeling of guilt about they couldn't be with their family and and having those conversations with my colleagues saying, but you you were there and you being there was so important that that toll that it's taken on staff, I think it's going to take years, years and years. I think we're going to see the effect on children for years to come. So yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And yet it's not only trauma. We've had all of that learning and that richness of experience as well. And if there's a way of enabling each other to come through that repaired and enriched as well as being wiser always means having a special place in yourself for sorrow that you didn't understand before doesn't it yeah so it's that it'll help take us forward I think and I hope that people listening to this obviously a lot of nurses listen and I hope they listen to those words that you're saying because I think they will give people comfort at the moment they're in that black point where they can only see that negativity and those pictures in their head of people like you say on high flow oxygen Mm. communicating with their loved ones through a conduit I think is still so raw but hopefully they'll hear your words and reflect on them and think actually look at what I've learned look at how my practice going forwards is going to be different and actually look at how I gave those people as good a death as was possible in those circumstances and I think also we've had a very big focus on hospital and hospital deaths. But of course, our community colleagues 
have been enabling people who didn't want to be separated from their loved ones yeah. to elect to stay at home through illnesses that might have led to their death or might have just been much more difficult during the illness and recovery than yeah. they might have been had they felt safe to go to hospital. Um, and that's so important, isn't it, that we remember all staff? <laughs> yeah. Because we're so different. I mean, I'm a mental health nurse. Obviously, Craig is normally here. He's an adult nurse. And we have those four distinct fields of nursing in the UK and children and, mm-hmm. and learning disabilities nurse. And I, I wonder whether you think there's more we can do. I think adult nurses get a fair amount of training w- within their training around palliative care and conversations around dying. We do a tiny bit in mental health. I think learning disability is very similar to ours. I'm not sure about children's nurses, but I wonder whether you think we need to broaden that. I mean, the deaths we tend to see as nurses in mental health are quite traumatic. I mean, people have physical health needs and they die the same way as the general population. But if we're talking about deaths from mental illness, they do tend to be quite traumatic and and upsetting. Do you think there's more we can do across different fields of nursing to broaden our understanding as professionals about how to have those conversations with families? Yeah, I I do. As as you're saying that, I'm just thinking back to the people who I've helped to look after who's either had a primary mental health diagnosis and they were going to die from that illness. Mm. I'm thinking of people with really extensive long-term eating disorders, for example. Yeah. Or people dying of the things that we all die of. But having alongside that burden, the long-term or current maybe their first episode ever of a, of a mental health problem. Yeah. And we, we end up in a pickle on both sides of this where mental health nurses doubt their ability to be able to do that physical health thing. I'm not doubly trained. I just, yeah. yeah. I'm not just anything. So that's the first thing. As soon as you hear yourself <laughs> saying, I'm just, just stop and think, what am I saying here? Mm. So the nursing role for patient advocacy is not different in adult physical health mental health children's nursing or learning disability it's exactly the same because we have quite intense certainly in a community mental health team we have quite intense relationships with our patients we're one of the teams that see patients for a much longer period of time in their homes we know their families so we are quite well placed sometimes I think if one of our patients develops cancer and, and is going to die from that, but also has schizophrenia, you know, we're quite well placed to have those conversations. But I think, like you say, we feel like maybe or we'd overstep the mark if we got involved in that. And we tend to split care then into teams. And yeah. that doesn't yeah. bring that holistic viewpoint in, does it? No. And I think when we're looking after a person who's approaching the end of their life, we need to form the most holistic multidisciplinary team we possibly can that's specific to them. So if this is a person who's got a long-term condition, physical or mental health, then their long-term condition specialists have to be part of that particular multidisciplinary patient person Mm. specific team, don't they? So I wouldn't dream of trying to do palliative care for somebody with end-stage heart failure without having the phone number of their cardiologist and their cardiology nurse specialist in my pocket and to include them in complex decision making and working with people with eating disorders is very similar and in fact a lot of them it is heart failure that's part of the difficulty at the very end of their lives so 
there's something about recognizing this individual person needs all of us. We're a village around them. Mm. And just making sure that we've got all of that expertise and that we're talking to each other. So I can remember having a patient in the community when I was working with a mental health team who was a person who had had depression for many, many years. And in fact, had enjoyed his longest remission from depression that he could ever remember when his lung cancer got diagnosed. And the only person he would allow into his house was his community psychiatric nurse. Mm. He wasn't having any other cancer team in. So it just so happened that there was a palliative care doctor on a psychiatry placement during her training in the team. I wasn't allowed into the house either. Mm -hmm. So I was giving the nurse and on one occasion one of the psychiatrists was actually allowed into the house these are the things that we need to find out about these are the sorts of physical questions to ask about but once you get onto emotional state why would I even be giving you any advice about that do what you do understand what you understand and I'd really like to hear what your formulation of it is because I will learn so much more from you Mm. making a formulation about somebody dealing with the end of their life through the prism of having dealt with a mental health struggle really this man had had throughout his life and what they were able to do was enable him to take the risk of experimenting with a very low dose of morphine for his breathlessness because he was really risk averse, because he had all of those well-primed paths into the disasters that could happen if he took any risk at all. And once he was no longer breathless and therefore could live more normally in his house, he married his long-term partner. The registrar went to the house and married them there together. And the CPN was one of the people who was at the wedding in the house. Oh, how lovely. So it was a a really, really great piece of work that they did. But all of his physical palliative care was managed by his mental health team in consultation with his GP and with the team at the local hospice who I was out on a long lend from doing my psychiatry experience. And that's so, so important, that it. teamwork, isn't it? And we, we yeah. are divisive in the NHS, in nursing. We split into groups and, and you've mentioned so many times the loved ones and the families. And it's so important to include them in these conversations and make them feel part of that team caring with anybody, especially I think when a child is dying, but throughout anybody's life, your family. And like you said earlier, your chosen family, it's got to be the people that you want there. Mm -hmm. Genetics isn't necessarily the definition, is it? And it's so, I think that's such a good example of him, including the people he wanted to be around him to have those conversations. Yeah. And I think his CPN was part of his chosen family. Yeah was invited to the wedding, for example. Yeah. And um, I think that's a huge privilege for us in healthcare that we are involved in people's innermost world for a period of time, aren't we? I know, it's Um, such a privilege, isn't it? Yeah, and they will remember that. They will remember us. So you talk to any woman who's had a baby is really likely to remember the name of a midwife. Yep. And what's awful for the midwife is that they... They're down the vegetable island, Tesco, and people go, oh, the rain! And they're thinking, okay, you're going to have to give me a clue here. And we get this in palliative care as well. We meet families where we've looked after somebody as they've been dying, and our name 
is kind of imprinted in the family yeah. consciousness. It's part of the story that they tell. So when such and such a, a nurse came to visit and this is what granddad said to her and da 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 da, da or, you know, Dr. Catherine came along and da 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 da. So yeah. it becomes part of the family. So, so then you For meet sure. them, oh, this is Dr. Catherine. And you're thinking, oh, and now I've realised that i got to just be completely honest and say, because I'm good with faces, I absolutely remember your face, but you're going to have to help me out here. You know, I just yeah. get that over at the very beginning. Yeah, you're true. That impact say, is huge, isn't it? My friend died of breast cancer and her four children remember the Marie Curie nurses coming to their house because they made it snow. Christmas was so important to her and they made it snow and they had this amazing Christmas day about 10 days before Christmas and she died two days later. And that is when you asked those little children, uh, they came to the funeral, about their mum they made she made it snow they thought it was their mum but they knew it was the nurses and we had Christmas early and they made it snow and they did that for that family and that family has these most amazing memories and photographs it's not in a nurse's job description to turn up with snow and (laughs) decorate the house but it was so important to their family that they had that Christmas yeah and they yeah. will always remember those nurses. And I'm sure if they see them in Tesco's, they'd ask them. And I'm sure it would be when they reminded them of the snow that they'd remember who they were. Yeah, <laughs> yeah of course. And we do. We do remember people who just need a few a, yes. a few bits to put it into place. Yeah. But yeah, it, what a privilege it is to, it is to be privilege. able to be with people at that time. And what a privilege to talk to you. So we, we always end, because I, I could talk to you for hours, but I'm aware <laughs> there is a fine end. We always end by asking our interviewees to give a piece of advice, whether to newly registered nurses, nurses in general. So what would your advice be to nurses moving forwards? Uh, I think the thing that makes a difference is us being curious. To go in and when we meet a new person and we meet the people who are important to them to just be curious about them to want to know what it is that makes them tick what it is that they hope for what it is that they dread and that way we can talk to them about how as we work together we can try and make it as much like what they hope for as it can be and the least like what they dread that it can be so that might sound like a strange question to ask somebody if you've got a best hope and a worst dread but it actually gets you to the place the stuff Mm. that you really need to talk about so it's all about curiosity and that the wisest nurses that I've worked with and I've worked with wonderful nurses my whole career I've been so lucky they can talk with a person about the thing that worries them the most and not interfere by closing it down, by reassuring them, by telling them not to worry, but by unpicking it and listening to it and being really curious about it. And they create a space where that person feels safe enough to say that stuff out loud. And sometimes saying it out loud, it's the first time they've said it. Sometimes as you say it out loud, you realise that your imagination was fueling that. And now that you hear yourself say it, you realise that it's quite unlikely to happen. But always you feel that you've been given a moment with this person that allows that to be looked at and explored and then put back together again in a way that somehow feels less of a burden. So just be curious. Oh, thank you so much. What a good piece of advice. And thank you for your time and for all the work you do. Keep doing it. Keep having those conversations. But thank you for talking to me today, Catherine. Thanks, Claire.
So Claire, I think we can agree that both Billy and Catherine gave such insightful, inspirational discussions about death and dying and also about the differential between palliative and end-of-life care. Yeah. So if we talk about them chronologically, so we obviously had Billy on to speak first, and obviously there's no denying to anyone that follows me that I'm a big campaigner for LGBTQ rights, but also health. I thought equity. you were going to say you were a big Billy fan. <laughs> well, I am are. a big Billy fan. <laughs> I, think that comes ac- I think that comes across. I think you might have to take a restraining order. Um, it's a good job there's a big ocean between the two of you. Yes, I must <laughs> preface this by saying I love my fiancé very much. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, I'm a big fan of Billy and his work. And I just think the fact that he talks about chosen families and also Catherine talked about chosen families because it's not always those that we're genetically linked to who we want to be involved in those end-of-life care decisions. What really struck me in Billy's interview was how if we were able to equip all nurses with the basic palliative care skills that perhaps it would have helped us deal with the emotional trauma, the burnout, the stress that we've been through this year. Because that is something that I personally, working, I'm not going to use the term frontline because I hate it, but working in a COVID hub have struggled with and was part of, not the only, but part of the reason that I moved to my new job. And perhaps if I'd had those skills I would have been better prepared and more equipped to deal with that. So what yeah, did you I, get from Billy's I think, I mean, I think maybe from both of them, but particularly from Billy, I think the, the act of dying, and you and I have both been with people when they've died, yeah. is a very personal thing that happens. It's very intimate. I think that's probably the right yeah. word. And it's, it's a privilege, especially when it happens peacefully. But actually what came across from both Billy and from Catherine, but Billy particularly, was this expansive nature of it and the fact that you can involve so many people, the stuff about chosen family and that you can do things your way. We are much better now at, certainly in the Western world, about talking to women about the type of birth they want. That's quite a normal conversation that we have. And we need to start having those conversations about the type of death you want. And and things don't always go right. You know, if we look at birth and death as two ends of a spectrum, we can plan for what type of birth we want with the knowledge that that might not happen. And we need to be having those matter-of-fact conversations. And we would never force a woman to have somebody in the room they didn't want or deny them. We're moving forwards with that now. We need to have that in parallel. And that really came across to me. I think what was great, obviously I did both interviews, but with Billy is... I came off that interview feeling positive and energized and inspired and not, oh, there feels like real hope and that a turning point and that this isn't just about one type of patient. This is expansive across everybody that we really are starting to explore people with different life backgrounds and different illnesses and that this can be bigger than maybe palliative care initially started out. Um, yeah, I think and that's that, really positive. Yeah, and that it needs to be much more holistic, which is what Catherine spoke about as well. Yeah, and, and then, that's starting early. That came across with both of them. When Billy was talking and saying, they call us in at the last minute and it's too late, but actually I need to be there from diagnosis, ideally, and know that this is what their journey's been and have yeah. that relationship with them. So I'm not just popping up and trying to have these intimate moments with somebody I've not developed a relationship with. Yeah, that, because that it really- is so important to differentiate 
that palliative care is not end of life care. End of life care is the end stage of palliative care. So when palliative care comes into place, palliative care is care for a condition for which there is no cure. And if we involve people really early on, and I know as a nurse who's worked in the environment and when I was a student nurse, people would call in palliative care nurses right at the end and then it's too late. Yeah, I think that came across with both of them. And I think we did reflect quite a lot through Billy's interview and I reflected quite a lot through Catherine's around our own experiences. I think the listeners will probably agree that they can take a lot from both those people and follow them both on Twitter because they're really inspiring. And I think that's what came for me from both of them is that, yes, this could be a chosen career path for somebody and both of those people have chosen a path to change. But actually, this can be part of our chosen career path and should be part of our chosen career path, no matter who we are. So that's what I took. And I was really nervous about you listening to the interview with Catherine because Catherine's someone who I've admired for a really long time and she's on Radio 4 right you know like she is a boss yeah and I've listened to interviews with her and read her book and found her very human when I've heard from her but nonetheless was quite when I was sitting there on Zoom quite like and then when I recorded it it was like talking to a friend it was quite emotional and I learned a lot from her she's an unbelievable swan but there is no denying that woman is fierce so when I sent it to you I was really nervous because I knew we both admired her so I'm really interested to see what you learned from Catherine yeah and I think for anyone that wants to follow Catherine she is on Twitter at Dr Catherine Mannix and you spell Catherine K-A-T-H-R-Y-N and Mannix is M-A-N-N-I-X so if you want to follow her on Twitter which you absolutely should that's how you follow her I think it was really good that I wasn't on the interview. When I listened back to it and I was editing it, it gave me a real time to reflect because a lot of the things you discussed are still very, very raw for me and very, very close to the bone. So some of the discussions that you two had around having to relay conversations between loved ones and patients So having the loved one say, I love you, and then me having Mm. to go and say, what would you like me to say back Mm. and and facilitating those conversations. This is very much still lived experience that's happened to me within the last couple of months. Yeah. Um, Having to phone and break the news to family members at two, three, four in the morning that their, their loved ones died. And then I guess I hadn't really thought about it until... I listened to your interview with Catherine, the guilt that that's made me feel, because I feel guilty because I have been in the place of that person's loved one, their chosen family, where they should be there at the end. It's been me or my colleagues that have been there. And I have done my utmost at every turn to make sure everyone's had as peaceful and as dignified a death as they possibly can and have involved the palliative care team as early on as we can. But it has been really hard and I think I would have been a bit too emotional if I'd been on the interview just because it touched. I'm emotional anyway. I was going to say, you emotional? (laughs) Never. But it's just 
still a bit too raw. So I think a lot of our listeners who listen to this episode will get the same reaction that I did when I edited it and listened to it. And I hope yeah. I hope they find it restorative because I, I found so. it very restorative listening to it. And I'm really pleased that you did. Yeah, that's what I took from it. There's somebody else I'd like to mention. I haven't told you I'm going to do this, but we interviewed <laughs> we interviewed one of our friends a while ago about sepsis, Kate, and she's yes. a really close friend of ours. And Kate works in ICU and she's also a single parent. Um, we interviewed her son as well. And so Kate goes home to Ethan and, and is a mum and she doesn't have that release. And I've thought a lot about Kate during this episode because of the stuff that she's had to go through. If you don't follow Kate on Twitter, you should follow her. She's Kate, K-A-Y-T-E, Powell, I think underscore Powell. There is a beautiful picture of Kate, which for me touches on everything Catherine said and Billy. And it's Kate reading a book to one of her patients, their favourite book. And she's reading a chapter. And this was something that this woman's husband found the most touching thing that Kate did. She's still alive at the moment, this patient, but it's an example of what what we can do for nurses. Go and have a look at the photograph of Kate reading to her patient, because for me, I've had a different experience of COVID and I can look on the outside and say, don't feel guilty, which I know a lot of people do. But if that was my loved one lying in that bed with Kate reading if, or if it was me, it would be Little Women. She'd be reading me Little Women. It's my favourite book of all time. And if she was reading that to me, that would provide my family with comfort. So don't feel guilty because you didn't create COVID. You didn't make this happen, but you did whatever you could to move it forward. And I think that's what Catherine and Billy are talking about. They're talking about the humanity of dying. Yeah. Um, COVID's been really difficult and it's been a real challenge. But just to bring it back a little bit to Catherine's episode, Catherine and I could have chatted for hours and on end. And it was really nice for me when I heard about the way she'd worked with a mental health nurse and that whole story around yeah. providing that care and it is true as a community mental health nurse, we have this unbelievable privilege of getting to know our patients over a longer period of time. One of the things we touched on, but we didn't talk about in depth was learning disability. Yeah, And Catherine wanted me to point out an amazing resource and we will link it, but it's the PCPLD network, which is about the palliative care needs of people with learning disabilities. You can find them at pcpld.org. The resources are amazing and their coronavirus resources are unbelievable and I think useful for everybody. So check out that if you're interested in having those conversations because it's really, really good. Absolutely. Um, And that's what we hope, right? That this starts those conversations yeah because I think it was interesting because when we posted that we were doing this episode there were some comments going oh god don't you think we've had enough of dying why the hell are you doing an episode of dying in the middle of why the hell are you doing an episode on dying in the middle of a covid pandemic but I actually think it's important that we do talk about it Oh, and yeah. just a wee tiny point of correction for those who want to follow Kate. Her um, Twitter <laughs> handle is at Kate, K-A-Y-T-E, 83. So follow her there. I have no memory. But you're right. It is about having those conversations. And when I think about Kate reading that book, and I talked in the episode about those Macmillan nurses making it snow for my friend's kids. Oh, my God. That, that made me sob when oh. I edited that. I was <laughs> crying my eyes out. But that's something nurses did. Kate read the book. Nurses made it snow. That is something that those families will take away with them forever. Do not underestimate. I'm not even one of her children. And still, 
whenever it snows near Christmas, I think of my friend, Karen, and her kids. Her kids are nearly adults now. And then I remember the nurses that made that happen. So that impact hasn't just impacted that family. I'm a work colleague of Karen's, who my friend that died. That ripple goes out everywhere. Do not underestimate the humanity you bring to people in that compassion and that care and those dying moments. Start having these conversations because it was through conversations with Karen that people learned how important Christmas was and how important a white Christmas was. They didn't know her. They wouldn't have known to make it snow. If Kate hadn't have had the conversation with the family about what her favorite book was and reading it, she wouldn't have known. And this lady may or may not survive, but that's true palliative care. She's not going to survive the illness that she has, but she might live for a long time. But Kate is making that difference to her in the family. Please, you know, and I think the other thing that came across from both Billy and Catherine was how incredible nurses were. You know, Catherine apologized to me for not being a nurse and then talked about the wonderful things. I know nurses have taught her, but the other thing both of them said is look after yourselves, find your people, talk Our to mantra. Them. Our mantra, find your people. So this episode is going to be really long because we could talk about this for hours. Yeah. There will be lots of resources. So we'll retweet quite a few times with different yeah. resources in, I think. And when we post the episode on Twitter, we'll put all these links underneath because yeah. both Billy and Catherine, Catherine have asked us to share those. So, yes, it's been quite an emotive episode, I'm sure, for a lot of people. Emotive, emotional, particularly reflective over the last year. But I hope that you find some light from it because I certainly know listening to the interview that I did that I found some light and speaking with Billy we both did so we just wish you all love and light happy Sunday happy Sunday and we'll see you in a fortnight thanks for listening to make sure you stay up to date with our latest podcast subscribe to retain the passion on your usual podcast provider you can follow us on all the social media channels at pod rtp on twitter facebook.com forward slash pod rtp or see our website www.podrtp.com for all our episodes you can follow craig at craig davidson 85 on twitter or me claire at manners of marple see you next time all music from this podcast was courtesy of kevin mcleod